Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with a recipe for baked farro with summer vegetables. If things seem a little quiet around here this summer, do know that it's less because I'm out having a hot vax summer and more because I'm in my own personal quarantine for a good cause, finishing my third cookbook, which will be out next fall. Although I'm somewhat panicked by the vanishing weeks between now and the deadline, I'm so excited about this book, I can't wait to tell you more about it. You know, should I survive the photo shoot and edits? If you spend some time on this site, you know what a forbidding task the copy editor has ahead. But I can't let another week go by without telling you about the most delicious pinnacle of summer baked grain dish that has ever existed in my kitchen. The origin of this recipe is pasta bake that's a favorite reader or that a favorite reader named Marcia sent me several years ago from a Williams Sonoma catalog. It's a summer staple for her and she thinks it's fantastic because of all of the ingredients are easy for her to get fresh and local. If you have a CSA or garden or farmer's market access right now, boy, would they like to sell some corn, tomatoes, and zucchini. The first time I made it, I used penne as the recipe recommends, and it was spectacularly delicious. So why do I use farro instead here? Because the sauce is so good, it doesn't want to share the spotlight with big pieces of pasta. Farro, small, nutty, and slightly chewy, is a fantastic supporting cast member while adding a heft that makes it clearly dinnery. I've tried to keep this as fuss-free as possible, but there's a bit of chopping and sautéing involved. I've ditched the peeling and seeding of tomatoes, which Marcia assures me she's never done either. I knew we liked her. The farro will cook in the oven and not a separate pot, and if you run it under your broiler or in the hottest part of your oven on high heat at the end, you'll get a crispy top. That's all I can think about. It's unclear to me why pasta plus vegetables equals a main dish, but farro plus vegetables equals a side, but I think of this as a main. You can put an egg on top or grill sausages on the side too, but you won't be disappointed if you eat it scooped onto a plate and showered with extra parmesan, as I usually do. Here's the recipe, baked farro with summer vegetables. Serve six to eight, takes one hour plus chopping. Source, adapted from Williams-Sonoma. Farro cooking times can vary. Written here is for what most is what's most common in stores near me, semi-pearled. The package should give you an indication of cooking time, which roughly matches the time in the oven, plus another 10 minutes, i.e. a package says it'll take 30 minutes to cook, will actually take 30 to 40 to bake. If yours says 40 or 45 minutes, expect the oven portion to take longer here. If you're using 5-minute farro, you might find you need less water and, of course, less cooking time. In some cases, the farro needs more water to cook, I give you an indicator in the recipe just in case. You're going to need olive oil, kosher salt, freshly ground black pepper, kernels cut from two ears of corn, it's about two cups, one and a half pounds of zucchini or other summer squash, about four medium, quartered lengthwise and sliced thin, one small onion diced, 
two cloves of garlic, thinly sliced, four medium or large Roma tomatoes, about one pound, diced, that's about two and a third cups, one teaspoon of chopped fresh oregano or one teaspoon of crumbled dried oregano, one quarter teaspoon of red pepper flakes or more to taste, one tablespoon of tomato paste, one quarter cup of white wine, this is optional, one half cup of thinly sliced fresh basil, one cup of uncooked semi-pearled farro, one and a half cups of water, six ounces of mozzarella cheese, diced, two-thirds cup of Parmesan cheese, finely grated. If you have an oven-proof 11-inch or 4-quart pan with a lid, use it here. If not, use a large 11 to 12-inch saute pan for the stove portion and transfer it to a 3 to 4-quart baking dish for the oven part. On the stove, heat the pan to medium-high, and once hot, add 2 tablespoons of olive oil. Let the oil warm and add the corn. Season with a half teaspoon of salt and many grinds of black pepper and cook, stirring occasionally, until the corn is lightly golden about five minutes. Tip the corn into a large bowl. Return the pan to medium-high heat and warm two more tablespoons of olive oil. Add half of zucchini and one quarter teaspoon salt, black pepper to taste, and cook stirring occasionally until the zucchini is tender and golden brown about six minutes. Add to the bowl with corn and repeat with more olive oil, salt, pepper, and the second half of zucchini. And this is a good time to heat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Reduce heat to medium and add another drizzle of olive oil. Add onion, one teaspoon of salt, red pepper flakes, and cook until the onion is translucent about two minutes. Stir in the tomatoes, garlic, and oregano and cook, stirring occasionally, until the tomatoes soften and begin to form a sauce, about five minutes. Stir in the tomato paste and cook for one minute. Add the wine if you're using and cook until the wine has reduced and the sauce is fairly thick, about three minutes more. Return the corn and zucchini to the pan and cook with the sauce for two minutes. Add the basil and stir to combine. Add the farro, water, and one more teaspoon of salt and stir to combine. If you need to transfer this to an oven-proof dish, go ahead and do it now. Stir in the diced mozzarella and half of the Parmesan. Sprinkle the remaining Parmesan on top and cover with a lid or tightly with foil and bake for 30 to 40 minutes until farro is cooked. Cooked farro should be tender but a little chewy, and if the pan is dry and your farro still seems undercooked, Add another one quarter to one half cup of water and return it to the oven until it reaches the right texture. Transfer the dish to your broiler or to the hottest part of your oven and crank the heat and cook until browned and crisp on top about three to five minutes under a broiler or five to seven in the oven. Serve warm. As far as doing ahead, the leftovers will keep for five to seven days in the fridge and you can rewarm those in a 350 degree oven this dish should also freeze well. Next, we've got a recipe for crispy sweet potato roast. This looks really pretty, by the way. I'm going to try to describe it. If you had a um, necklace around your neck that had, um, oh gosh, even flowers, like a uh, Hawaiian lei, like lots and lots of layers, that's what this sweet potato roast looks like. It's like all these slices of um, 
sweet potatoes in a line wrapped around each other. I have a complicated relationship with sweet potatoes. I think that they're one of these wonder vegetables, impossible to mess up cooking, pretty consistently delicious whether you buy them freshly dug from the farmer's market or from a grocery chain, a glow with vitamins A and C and chock full of fiber, which I mostly think about because I'm the mother of a sweet potato junkie. I like them in cake, sweet biscuits and pie. I like them with goat cheese and light vinaigrette, gratined with a tang uh, tangle of chard, with a strange but addictive mix of spices and roasted in wedges, and one bowl mealed with roasted broccoli, black rice, and miso sauce. But I also have a sort of quibbles with them. They're never crispy enough. They're rarely savory enough. Basically, if you get within 10 feet of my savory sweet potato dish with cinnamon, I go hiding. For me, the louder the contrast between their sweet, soft nature, the happier I am eating them. Which means it was only a matter of time before I took this pretty, pretty crispy potato roast from the archives and tried to put a Thanksgiving spin on it. The ta-da factor is strong here and the workload manageable. You thinly slice a whole lot of sweet potatoes and arrange them in a butter and olive oil brush dish and brush them with even more. You can slide slivers of shallots between the sweet potato pages. You will want to shower the whole thing with salt and black pepper or red pepper flakes. You bake it with foil on long enough that the insides get tender and without foil long enough to get the tops brown and crispy. This is not your standard holiday sweet potato mash. So once again, I think that's the best way I can describe it. Or, you know, Necco wafers, that candy, they're just like little slices. I think that's what this looks like. Um, I went a step further with something of a Thanksgiving salsa verde, or perhaps a Simon and Garfunkel salsa verde. I'd intended to just make it with parsley, but once I realized that the only herbs that survived early November in my short-lived herb garden were the sage, rosemary, and thyme, well, you know, I just had to. It's minced up with garlic, capers, lemon zest, and olive oil, salt, and pepper flakes. We liked it with the potatoes, but it may not be for everyone. I don't think these would be unwelcome with any contrasting sauce that you might prefer. Perhaps this chili lime vinaigrette or even a lemon sumac dressing. And there are links at smittenkitchen.com. You can go more classic with some creme fraiche, thinned until drizzleable with milk, and scattered with chives and parsley. But if you do that, you have to promise to invite me to. Here's the recipe, crispy sweet potato roast, and inspired by this one. And there's a link. I don't know what that means. I think it's one of her children. The only thing that you might find exasperating about this recipe is how hard it is to get the measurements just right. I used a two-quart oval baking dish and needed five pounds of smallish sweet potatoes to fill it. If yours are smaller or thinner, you might need fewer pounds. If yours are thicker, you might want to safely buy six pounds. It seems safest to buy a little extra just in case. Mine baked in an hour, but thicker sliced potatoes could take up to 15 minutes longer. You can absolutely make this ahead of time. It will warm well wherever you go. 
It can be made up to two days in advance and still taste as good as day one. You'll need three tablespoons of salted or unsalted butter, melted, three tablespoons of olive oil, coarse salt and black pepper or red pepper flakes to taste, five pounds of sweet potatoes peeled and sliced thin, two shallots peeled and sliced thin. Heat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Heat the butter and oil together until the butter has melted. Pour two tablespoons of the mixture in the bottom of a two-quart baking dish. Mine is 9 by 0.5 by 12 inches, if that helps. Sprinkle the butter oil puddle with some salt and pepper and arrange your potato slices vertically in the dish. Add a sliver of shallot between every few slices of potato, if desired. Brush the tops of potatoes with the remaining butter and oil and season generously with more salt and pepper. Cover the dish with foil and bake for 45 to 50 minutes until the potatoes are tender and almost fully cooked. Increase the oven heat to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Remove the foil and let roast another 10 to 20 minutes until the tops of potatoes are nicely browned. If you'd like to finish this with the Thanksgiving salsa verde that I show here, or at least serve it on the side, place one scant cup of parsley leaves, one tablespoon of fresh rosemary, one generous teaspoon of fresh thyme and sage leaves, one small garlic clove and the zest of a half a lemon, and two teaspoons of capers, rinsed and drained if they're salted, and put them in a food processor or a blender and blend until they are finely chopped. Drizzle in seven tablespoons of olive oil with the machine running or enough that the mixture is loose and somewhat pourable. Season well with salt and pepper flakes. That sounds really good, and it looks really good too. <laughs> All right, next we're going to have a recipe for this will be a dessert intensely chocolate sables. They look very intensely chocolate, really deep, deep brown. Although I would hardly say that having a kid has made me wiser, there have been just too many incidents like this one in the morning when not a single of the following clues piqued my concern. Three-year-old going into the bathroom to bring his step stool into another room. The sound of a cabinet opening, a fridge opening, followed by a banging sound on the counter. Until it was too late and a once-clean child in a once-clean kitchen was making scrambled eggs. I can't help but have come to a few salient conclusions about children and life itself over the last few years that I find infinitely applicable. One, there are few things that go wrong that a good night's sleep cannot fix. Two, sometimes you really just need to scream and yell and have a great big noisy fuss for a few minutes to get it all out. Pounding your tiny dimpled fists on the carpet is optional, but this is no time to hold back feeling all the feelings, you know, so that you can resume being sweet and awesome for the remaining minutes of the day. And finally, there's not a single person in this universe who does not need a cookie at 4 p.m. each day, like clockwork. Nobody, not even you, even in the month of resolutions. One of my great cookie loves and the most ideal 4 p.m. mini escapist treat is the chocolate sable from Balthazar Bakery. I don't get it often because that would be dangerous. I usually indulge when I've mentally committed to walking either there or back or both, exercise, or I'm having the kind of day that only a short walk to Soho would improve. 
Justification. If you've ever been to Balthazar, you've probably looked right past it to oogle the pan au chocolat or burnished plum tarts because it looks plain and dull, hardly competitive with its surroundings. And I think you've missed out because alone in its one quarter inch thick fluted round is the intensity of all the chocolate in Paris. Okay, I exaggerate, but still, that's no excuse to miss it. It's bittersweet, crisp, and sandy. It absolutely aches with chocolate impact, and it makes me very happy. My attempts to recreate it at home have been less so. I felt like I'd tried everything in the world, buying the Balthazar cookbook, only to find the recipe absent. That was so cruel. And then increasing the cocoa to flour proportion in my go-to sable recipe more and more in hopes to get that deeply rooted chocolate flavor and failing. When I one day stumbled on the chocolate sable recipe from Mieta cookbook from the Darling Eponymous Bakery in San Francisco. The ingredient list, cocoa, flour, sugar, butter, salt, leavener, was exactly like all the others save one blessed addition, grated bittersweet chocolate. And it was in this that I unlocked the Spring Street magic that had thus far eluded me. Well, mostly. The cookie was, in fact, an utter flop for me. The crumbs never came together into a dough. I spread the rubble on a tray, and I baked, and I tossed it until it was crisp. And we've taken to spreading these cookie crumbles on ice cream, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea if you had no not-eat Oreo sundaes anywhere in your January goals. So back to the drawing board, I made some tweaks, grinding the chocolate, less pesky than grating, an egg yolk to bind the mixture together, slightly less sugar to approximate the bitter sweetness of the inspiring sable, less baking soda and Dutch cocoa with its nutty, dark properties really makes a difference here. So they may look a little thin and flimsy, but should they should not be underestimated. When they come out of the oven, your kitchen will smell like there's a bubbling cauldron of melted chocolate on the stove, and people who walk through your front door and inhale will have an absolutely startled reaction. Mommy, what you make me? Your kid will demand to know. Broccoli is probably not what you'll reply because you're not a smart, you know what, bias like his elders. But days later, you will open the container they are stored in and be smacked in the face with the same chocolatey intensity if anything more potent with age. And I know you could bake them up and decorate them, all pretty with sprinkles and pink baubles, and box them up for any of your loves. But I think you should just make them for you, because those 4 p.m. hankerings will arrive all of the days this week and for the next thereafter, and you might as well be decadently prepared. Here is the recipe for intensely chocolate sables, inspired by Balthazar, adapted quite a bit from Miette. I prefer these cookies with Dutch cocoa powder, which is darker and a little little nuttier. But based on the comments that I'm reading, I'm going to um, red card the use of natural or non-Dutch cocoa. For now, as the folks using this kind seem to be the ones having the most trouble with their cookies falling apart. So sorry for the trouble. It just seems most reliable to use this recipe with Dutch cocoa. Also, it's tastier. Technically speaking, bank baking soda and Dutch cocoa powder don't react, but I found that it imparted a slight raised texture and better crumb than skipping it or using baking powder, so I kept it here. 
Besides changing the type of cocoa powder and decreasing the baking soda, I also adjusted the recipe by adding an egg yolk so it would come together, giving you the option to grind instead of grating the chocolate, a step I find pesky because my warm hands make a mess of it. And then because the Balthazar cookie I fell in love with is so bittersweet, giving you a suggested reduced sugar amount. If you'd like a bittersweet chocolate cookie, use the one half cup amount. If you'd like a sweeter, although hardly overly sweet, chocolate cookie, use two thirds of a cup. I always sprinkle these with coarse brown sugar, but I'm sure they could be prettied up with sprinkles or the like as well. This makes 40 to 48 two inch thin cookies, fewer if they're thicker. You'll need one cup of all-purpose flour, one-third cup of dutched cocoa powder, one-quarter teaspoon baking soda, one-half cup, which is one stick of unsalted butter at room temperature, one-half to two-thirds cup of granulated sugar, less for a more bittersweet cookie, one-quarter teaspoon fine sea salt, one large egg yolk, one-half teaspoon of vanilla extract, Three, one, three and a half ounces of semi or bittersweet chocolate, grated or finely chopped until almost powdery in a food processor. Coarse sugar, which is turbinado sugar or in the raw or decorative, for sprinkling. You're going to sift together the flour, cocoa, and baking soda on a piece of wax paper or into a bowl and set aside. I almost always skip skimp on sifting whenever possible but my cocoa is always lumpy so this is unavoidable here cream your butter sugar and salt together in a large bowl with an electric mixer until light and fluffy add the egg yolk and vanilla beating until combined then scraping down the sides add dry ingredients and grated chocolate together and mix until just combined Scrape the dough onto a piece of plastic wrap and wrap it up and chill it in the fridge until just firm, about 30 to 45 minutes. No need to get it fully hard or it will be harder to roll out. The dough can be refrigerated until needed, up to two days or frozen longer, but let it warm up and soften a bit before rolling it out for decreased frustration. Heat your oven to 350 degrees and on a floured surface, Roll the dough gently. It will still be on the crumbly side, so only attempt to flatten it slightly with each roll until it's about one eighth inch thick. That's for the thin cookies, which is what I did, or a quarter inch thick for the thicker ones. Cut into desired shapes and space them an inch apart on a parchment lined baking sheet. Sprinkle decoratively with coarse sugar and bake for eight to 10 minutes for the thinner cookies or 10 to 12 minutes for the thicker ones. Leave the cookies on the baking sheets out of the oven for a couple of minutes before gently, carefully transferring them to cooling racks as they'll be fragile until they cool. The cookies can be stored in an airtight container for up to two weeks of 4 p.m. rations. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.